Okay, welcome back. Hope, hi upstairs. Um, so what I was saying for the folks upstairs who couldn't hear is that these are cases that are derived from questions that I get through the year. They are, of course, modeled off of a real case, perhaps, but you, what I've learned over the years is that if you really have a real case, it never works because everyone gets hung up on the minor detail and you get to spend all your time talking about the minor detail and you miss the big picture, so I model it to, just to bring out the point. And so everything that's in the question is designed to be there. It's sort of like taking a test question for the boards. Those are never based on real cases usually because those don't work either. Um, so here we go. That's, we're going to talk about starting therapy in some folks and what to start, what to do in virally suppressed folks, partners of seropositive partners, coronary disease, and to orient, we'll talk first about what question, what ballpark we're in. <clears throat> so the question is, seems like we're starting ARV for about everyone now. What do we do for an elite controller? So this was a 30-year-old guy, um, HIV infected four years ago, antibody positive, never had detectable HIV RNA, but did have DNA positive. Uh, CD4 count was 870, and his remains right in the 8 to 900 range the whole time, not dropping. Other labs, uh, HLA-B57 is negative, genotype is wild type from the DNA, no prior medical history. He says to you, I'll start therapy if you think I should. It's all on you. What are you going to do? Start therapy, yes, no, maybe. Go ahead and vote. Told you. How does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean, improvidence, impoverished, and squalor. Grow up to be a hero and a scholar. The $10, what do we got? All right, so panel, what do you think? What say ye? Dr. Volberding, would you start this guy? I said Maybe? I said yes, but I think I'd say yes. That's what I voted. Okay. Do you no, have a I, reason I mean, for that? No, it's just, um, you know, uh, the data on inflammation in elite controllers, it's there. It's not striking. Uh, but I think it's probably real and that by treating you probably decrease that and that probably uh, lowers the rate of comorbidities later on. Uh, but I wouldn't sit on this guy and force him to do it the way I would, you know, somebody with more virus. Dr. Grinspoon, in addition to starting a statin and aspirin, what else would you do? I wouldn't do that, but I, I'm, and I'm not ID, but following up what Paul said, we, you know, we have published, speak, uh, speak right so we have, we have published um, that elite controllers do have high levels of immune activation uh, and that they rela that relates to coronary plaque that's present in those patients at a, a high unexpected levels. Okay. So. I don't, there's, to my knowledge, there's never been a study of giving ART for that purpose to see that endpoint, but I would be a little worried to let this person live uh, believing that this immune activation is not harmful. I, I don't know that it is, but it's a little yep. worse. Eric? Yeah, so I agree, and I, I, I'm a yes mostly because of the way you worded Ooh. this, and that it sounded like everybody was on board and ready to go. I think if you had any hesitation at all, I'd be a very okay, firm good point. maybe. That's why I did it that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, there is a study that was done through the ACTG okay. looking at Tanofor FTC, Rilpivirine. Okay. 
in elite controllers, and we haven't seen the data yet. Okay. And the primary endpoint was looking at inflammatory markers. Oh, yeah. Susan, quick question. No, go ahead and make your comment. I've got a question for you. I was going to say, having worked, with elite, having worked with elite controllers for many years, I think what's always discouraging is some of the late complications like lymphomas and things that are not necessarily, um, that, that may be as a result of the chronic inflammation for many, many years. So that also pushes me to want yeah. them and there treated. Were, there was also some data as from the old um, Australian cohorts that over time they do, they do emerge and, and uh -huh. get complications. So... If they're ready, I'm more than happy to prescribe. Okay, Dennis, we got the whole panel. Let's go. <laughs> Just, I, I have to say, from the standpoint of neuroprotection for the brain, although the risk for cognitive dysfunction is greatest in those that have a low CD4 nadir, we're concerned very much in neurology about the persistent immune activation that's reflected in the central wow. nervous system as a risk factor. So, What a radical group of panelists. Everybody's jumping on board. Ah, thanks. And, Susan, I had a backup question for you, and that is, what do you think the likelihood is on a percentage basis of this person on, not on treatment transmitting the virus to someone else through unprotected, let's just call it uh, insertive rectal intercourse? Well, you know, I, I think we're, we don't completely know because uh, what we know is that treatment, driving down uh, your viral load based on treatment, you're less likely to transmit. I think it's very unlikely that he would transmit, but I think, again, if you're looking for an extra layer of safety and you're looking for an extra reason to help encourage him to get onto treatment, yeah. it would be uh, less likely to, to transmit. Eric? It, it's funny. I mean, actually, the original data, though, was the Tom Quinn Rakai study. That's true. Ah, was that's true. Study. That's a very good point. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. Yeah. 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 So, what was We've that study? So used to the I know. No, no. It, you're absolutely right. But, yeah. no. So, there was a direct relationship between viral load and a natural history study and risk of transmitting to their partners. Yes. And, and I think absolutely. less than 1,500, there were no transmissions. I, absolutely. That's why I showed the greater than 1,500. But I was, yeah. I was just focused on getting them on treatment. So, for those of you listening, um, that study, <laughs> wow, this is good. The, the study was uh, from Rakai, Uganda, Tom Quinn at Hopkins and colleagues, uh, studied serodiscordant couples, and they measured viral load in them and looked for transmission. And then they divided the viral load groups into quintiles of, you know, five different groups. And the lowest quintile was zero or undetectable to 1,500 or 1,200. There were no transmissions at all in that group over a period of observation. And so that sort of tells you that this guy's, along with the other data, that this guy's kind of unlikely. There's also, there are a couple of studies, a partner's study and there's one other, I don't remember what it's called, that are multi-country studies looking at the risk of transmission in a, a serodiscordant couple. Um, I guess the, it, the only thing I would just raise is being, and looking at, there aren't transmissions, but there, there is this, upper bound of the confidence interval. I guess the only thing I was just going to mention is just that this is anal sex. Uh-huh. That's what I said. And, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. No, I, I just made it, that up. Yeah, but go ahead. Oh, no. Yeah, it is now. <laughs> I, I wasn't listening again. No, no. But, I, no, I, um, I no but I think sex. that the risk of transmission, uh, of acquisition through anal sex is going to be a little bit, is going to be higher than for vaginal sex. That said, if there's yeah. no virus, it do, that's not as important. But I think that the... Yeah, so. Susan. There is also some issue of compartmentalization, and there may actually be viral load in the, in the film of foods and not in the blood. So yeah, so. It, it, it's, always, it's always a complication. You can't predict. There's some right. prime times there's, 
Right, and we're going to get to that in a few in a question that's coming up. So, good start. Lots of energy. Here's one of the other reasons I put this up here is because, as you heard from Steve Deeks' talk about cure, what we'd love to do is eradicate, and you're getting a sense from the field that outside of running down the hall with these CRISPR scissors and cutting everything in sight and killing someone, um, maybe, maybe not, um, cure doesn't feel real likely. So everyone's talking about functional cure. Well, to me, an elite controller has a functional cure. It just happens to be natural without any intervention. These are data from San Francisco and Peter Hunt uh, and Steve Deek's group. Um, and what, what you're seeing here is that if you look at CD38, which is a marker of inflammation in patients who are uh, HIV-infected but not on treatment, HIV-infected and suppressed, versus negative, you see the scale. Look where the elite controllers pan out as far as just activation. So what this is saying is that the price being paid by the immune system, that's a little strong, but there's some energy going on, right? Some inflammation to keep that viral load in check, which makes sense. But it raises for me the question of, are we really gonna be satisfied with a functional cure? If we're saying, 66% of the audience, almost 100% of the panel are saying, if I see this guy in my practice, I'm gonna treat him, how can we be happy with a functional cure? That's why I'm raising the question. I'm not saying that we're wrong for seeking that, but just honestly, from my perspective, a functional cure is a bit of a short-term cop-out, and I think we should keep pushing for eradication rather than just being satisfied. So another, another issue with that um, is that you know, the only way you're going to know somebody is cured is if you wait 30 or 40 years and see if the virus comes back. The same way with a functional cure. And if it comes back in between the times that you're seeing the patient and, and measuring things, they could transmit the virus to someone else. Right. It's less likely with an elite controller uh, because the, I think the history is that they tend not to have a recurrent viremia. Their CD4s go down. Right. Uh, but I think, I think it's a the functional cure is a pretty dangerous situation. Right. So a question just came in for the audience, Susan, for you, I think. Let's say this was a woman and she's pregnant at six weeks and you discover that she's an elite controller. Are you gonna put her on antiretroviral therapy? I am. Okay. And the guy, well, it's hard to argue. The guy, guidelines say all women, regardless of C4 and by low, to be on, on Fair enough. Con con heart. I mean, we could argue hypothetically that it probably isn't gonna transmit, but you know, what's it's a little antiretroviral therapy among friends? It's, you know, <laughs> it's okay. And then this is a similar study, uh, same group. This happens to be Priscilla Sue, who is a cardiologist. And here again, you see, just in terms of medial animal thickness, which is a metric that also relates to what Steve talked about. And the elite controllers, it, it's hard to say it's hugely different, but you can see from Steve's talk that there's plausible rationale for this being the case. So. Another question from the audience was, um, all right, well, great. Let's say the patient doesn't want to go now. What are you going to monitor? And this is going to come up in a future uh, question. I believe I have that slide still in. But the, the metric probably would be um, CD8, CD4, CD8 ratio. We get it every time we get a CD4 count. <coughs> if that goes below 0.5, that, that would be a signal to treat. If they're one, 
then probably you could watch. That's what most people say. But definitely, if it's below 0.5, CD4 to CD8 ratio, um, then most people would recommend treatment. All right, let's move on to the next case. Now, obviously, you're going to treat other people. What are you going to use? So lots of options. This is a male who comes in asymptomatic. Uh, RNA is 28,000, CD4 counts 650. The other labs are normal. Um, B5701 negative, wild-type virus, negative medical history, normal renal function, wants to start, wants to follow your guidance in terms of what he should take. So this is a mess. <laughs> I'll point out a few things. You can find your favorite while I talk. Um, so, so one here, the old-fashioned fixed-dose combination with the Favarins, or the new fixed-dose combinations, a lot of TAF options. Look at this one. You're going to hear about this from Eric Dar later. Dalitavir 3TC. Let's go ahead and vote. You can't read it anymore, can you? You got one shot. I know. I'm sorry. King's College. Columbia, right? Okay. This is the squint question. As predicted, right, lots of options. Um, interestingly, 6% went with an old favorite of, I'll use a trade name once, a tripla. Um, other people went with this fixed-dose combination, dolutegravir with abacavir, B5701 negative. And then a smattering of other things. Eric, I'll start with you this time. What would you do? Yeah, no, this is, you know, it's hard to pin one down. I, you know, I probably would have offered and been sitting on the fence between TAF-FTC, dolutegravir, and abacavir 3TC, dolutegravir, and just tried to feel him out as to how important a single tablet regimen is to him and talked to him about the balance between the two. He's 48 years old. I'm not saying I, I have put a lot of weight into the abacavir issue that Steve talked about, but it's out there. Yep. We're never going to be able to prove it doesn't exist. Yep. If he were younger, um, I would probably feel a little bit more comfortable saying let's just go for it. If you were older with more comorbidities, I would say let's definitely not do it since we have other options. In okay. his case, I'm sort of on the fence. So if you remember back to John Fair's polling here, he asked the question, how many of you went to Croy? And it was 6%. And lo and behold, 6% voted for Dalutegravir 3TC. Coincidence? <laughs> what do you think? Would you use that? I think it's not a coincidence. No. Okay. <laughs> no, um, You're going to talk about yeah, it Yeah, I'm going to talk about preview. it more. It's just, you know, the, so the dolutegravir 3TC is being looked at for first-line therapy and for maintenance therapy. The data for first-line that's out there right now is a small study of high CD4, low viral load patients, 20 of them. There's a population, the ACTG study that's been completed but not yet reported of about 100 with some higher viral loads, and there's a fully powered phase three study that's fully enrolled that'll include people with viral loads up to 500,000. So stay tuned. Until I have that data, yeah. I think we have a lot of other great options, yeah, but, we do. but it could be a big change. Right. Um, Susan, would you go back to the old standard? Anybody on the panel? No, not, I, I think don't be as really clear. Is that... Um, using Favarin says totally um, second line. Okay. And unless it, it only made you could get for insurance or whatever, otherwise I would not support that. I think a lot of those are very good options. I yeah. hate, hate to use trade names, but Jim Boyer, the one with the uh, like, Severe. I think even Refuperine, they have no history of, yeah. of, of depression well, or 
low viral loads, less uh, whatever it is. Well so powered. I think some of these are, are just great. And again, one pill a day. So I think luckily we have lots of choices. Steve. <laughs> Getting back to Abacavir, um, you know, I, I don't think the data are out there. They're, they're not good enough to sort of proscribe this one way or another. But I think being, a, you know, doctor, being a doctor is sort of judgment. So if, if you had a person who, uh, if this person had high cardiovascular risk um, and, uh, you know, was someone who had a, maybe a prior event or something like that, you know, I think you might wish to not do it. Um, and I think um, the data on the back of here are interesting that the events tend to happen initially after treatment. Um, it's sort of suggesting there's something it's doing functionally immediately. Um, so I think you could factor that into your decision. Um, okay. Well, let's go on because there's uh, a follow-up question. So here, here's a similar guy, um, and you can sort of see how I model these things. So the big differences are um, recently diagnosed. He's got a little bit of weight loss and fatigue, and as you look at his viral load and CD4 count of over 700,000 and a CD4 count of 21, you can see why that might be the case. Other things are similar. Prior, no past medical history, normal renal function. No, not a smoker. Lipids are okay. Uh, otherwise, fine. Uh, now we're going to go back. I'm going to let you look. Just pick your answer before we go to the screen. Um, so you can see I changed it up a little bit. I, I took deliberately the Dalutegravir 3TC option out because it wouldn't be appropriate here even with maintenance. And I think in this situation, we'll see what the data show. But I did put in something that's going to probably be released this summer, which is once daily Raltegravir, which will come out in a new formulation. So that's futuristic, but not too far in the future. And then we have the usual uh, Adazanavir boosted, uh, Darunavir boosted. Here's the regimen that uh, Eric mentioned first. Uh, here's Rolpivirine, uh, won't comment. And then here's your other things. Let's go ahead and vote. Are you going to vote or be an American idiot? You've got to get this off quickly because they dropped the F-bomb in a few lyrics here. Oh, this is, we're getting there. You all know that song, right? Some of you, yeah, fellows, yeah, right. The mind, America. Here we go. So the majority went with what I'll start calling uh, the DAR regimen, um, this. Um, some folks went with Darunavir. The reason I put this up here is because there's a mindset in the community that's hung over from early days where protease inhibitors were viewed as the most potent, right? How many people kind of find that? Yeah, okay, it's, it's what we think. So comments from the crowd. Just to provide clarity, there's a few typos. Um, oh, you really? Meant, so okay. it's TAF-FTC and Dolutegravir, and it's the fixed-dose combination is TAF-FTC. Oh, you're right. And Dolutegravir no, is separate. You're so, yeah. but, but it is intriguing, right. and we'll be talking right. after this, we'll be talking about a new integrase inhibitor yeah. that will be in a fixed-dose combination okay, with TAF-FTC. You're right. You but made until it clear. Then. Sorry. No, no problem. Well, but, you know, you to, to me, the, the only regimen here that becomes wrong, I think, in the context of the higher viral load and the lower CD4 count is the rilpivirine, where right. I agree with everyone that first patient, TAF-FTC rilpivirine would be a, a 
very good regimen yeah. for. Maybe not now, just because yeah. of a higher risk of failure. Right. So um, the guideline. Yeah, Susan. There are there are times I actually do choose a a, a, um, a PI, especially in patients that I'm I'm not sure they'll be as as um, adherent as the average patient. Um, maybe they have drug use. Maybe they're um, um, very chaotic lives. In that sense, I feel that the PIs can be maybe a little more stable. You already told me that 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 they have no resistance, which is great. But there are some patients I I choose that more for the for the um, development of, of mutations rather than necessarily potent or less potent. Right. On the other hand, if, we're, if the patient takes the medicine, it's going to work, right? I think in all of these regimens. And here's, here's at least my read of the literacy, if the panel agrees, that the, the potency really isn't an issue anymore. And in fact, if you look back at the literature on the Afavirin's TDF-FTC, the, use of the artist formerly known as Atripla, then you... <laughs> you would see that it worked just as well and greater than 500 is less than 500,000. It was just a carry forward from the history where nevirapine uh, uh, was the first one out and, and it didn't work quite as well compared to some of the other, but Afavirin's always did. But yet Darunavir got the inside track on that or other protease inhibitors and back in the day when lopinavir was used more, I don't even put it up as an option that much anymore even though Ab is right down the road. We don't use it very much. I think the, the take-home point is that any one of these outside of rilpivirine, I think, would work. It's about tolerability, right? What, what can the patient take? And that's the take-home point. Okay. In the interest of time, I'll move on. But notice that the, there's a bunch of different guidelines out there. These are from the IES USA guidelines. And as far as recommended regimens, they're all um, integrase-based. But at alternative sort of ends up being viewed as somehow uh, second rate. I don't think that's really the case. At least that's not how I view it. I think they're just what they are, alternatives. They're equally good in a way. Uh, you just, it's just, you tailor it to the patient and you work it out. So here would, in that first case would be rilpivirine and here's a favorins if that's what you want to use for whatever reason. Okay, and there might be reasons that will come up on a future case that Susan will have a lot to say about. Okay, and then the rest here, um, and this is the regimens we'll probably be using most, um, as you can see, until the new drugs come out that Eric will tell you about. So this will be accurate for about four months. <laughs> okay, this is what I find a fascinating slide, just to, just to have fun. Um, these are what the estimated price per year is in sub-Saharan Africa. Dalutegravir 3TC for one year, $46. TAF 3TC Dalutegravir, $60. I'll let that speak for itself. All right, what regimen should be used? This comes up all the time, right? And especially among at least our first-year fellows when they're in the clinic and they got a new patient and we did our due diligence and here comes the patient and they've got everything going great except mm, there's a 184V. You ever see that? Mm-hmm. All right, so here we go. This is, our, this is the same scenario as our first case except it's a 30-year-old woman and she's got HIV newly diagnosed. She's asymptomatic, viral load 28,000, miraculously 650, just like the other guy. Amazing. B5701 negative, uh, M184V, 
no prior medical history. She doesn't have any children, but more importantly, right now she doesn't plan to become pregnant. And she's okay to start if you think she shouldn't. Of course you do. So look at these. They're very similar to the first options, including the Dalutegravir 3TC, the once daily Raltegravir, a couple of boosted. Uh, here's that strange F, scratch that, right? So um, everyone look and pick your favorite. And an M184V is present. Let's go and vote. 28,000. Oh, I love this song. Seen Spring Awakening? Yeah? I love this song because I use it in clinic a lot. Somebody comes in, they're 65, I've taken care of them for 25 years. They're complaining because their shoulder's sore. You know, they've lived for 30 years with HIV and their shoulder's sore. <laughs> and I smile and look at them and say, that's the bitch of living. And then they get it, right? And that's the name of the song. But we, we treat the shoulder with PT and all that. All right. So here we go. So Eric, is there a wrong answer up there? You know, it depends on how you define wrong. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's a tough one in, in that we have so little data um, to inform this decision. And if you do it based on where we have most of the data, and where you're the least likely to do harm, I think there is one right answer, and that's TAF, FTC, Darunavir, Ritonavir, in that we have a lot of data in people who have 3TC resistance using a boosted PI with recycled nukes. We have the three large randomized control trials showing high rates of efficacy in that setting. Uh, in all of the other situations, we have very little data, and we have reason to be concerned because most of them have not been looked at where you have 3TC resistance. And in drugs with a relatively low barrier to resistance, which at least in the current era, one would argue is probably most of them except boosted PIs and probably dolutegravir, I think we would all accept that the risk is probably higher. Now, does that mean it'll never work? No, I mean, it does work. And uh, it's just a matter of how much risk you're willing to take. And usually that's determined by what the patient is pressuring you to do. So if the patient, in my view, if the patient were willing to take TAF-FTC, darunavir-ritonavir, that's what I would recommend to them. Okay. If they were balking for any reason, or darunavir-cobi, but if they were balking for any reason, we could have a discussion. And there is certainly data that suggests that dolutegravir uh, without a full nuke backbone, mm -hmm. a dozen patients in a post hoc analysis mm -hmm. from the sailing trial showed no failures. Yep. Um, so can you do it? Um, probably. Mm -hmm. What's the likelihood of success? Is it 90% like everything else versus 80 or 75? I don't know. Right. So I, I agree on the data points. I would also argue that, to me, the one wrong answer right now is the dolutegravir 3TC, because as you're going to show about monotherapy yeah. with dolutegravir, I won't spoil his thunder, but it didn't work. Um, or it didn't work as well. As well. Yeah. But, so, but the rest of them, I would argue that the integrase inhibitors are at least head-to-head -head against a boosted PI, pretty much equal potent, number one. Number two, remember that, that 3TC and FTC resistance, even though when you look on a phenosense or a phenotype, it goes way off the chart resistant. But if you look at activity, there's still about a half a log to 0.7 log activity, going back to a study from 
1994 or so out of North Carolina. And so there is some activity left, so it's not like you've lost the whole drug. And, and unlike you'd find with a non-nuke, I'd be a little bit more, so the areas where I'd be especially cautious might be with, uh, for sure with this Dalutegravir 3TC and anything with a Bacavir because you've lost a little bit of potency there. On the other hand, this person has only 28,000 copies and they're probably gonna do well no matter what you choose. Paul. Well, I, just to put a note in that I, I generally would rather not use a booster if I can avoid uh -huh. it. Yeah. Just, you know, it adds complexity to the rest of the things we don't really know long run. Is she gonna need, or does she already need any other meds with, with more drug interactions? So I, things being equal, I'd probably try to go to a non-boosted regimen. Right. And at this, I don't have the follow-up case, but I thought we'd just discuss. Yes, please. Just yell real loud. I'll repeat All it. All these regimens have a nucleoside backbone. Correct. Would you be tempted to a like this to use a non-nuclear? So yeah. they won't hear it upstairs. Yeah, I know. So I'm repeat. So the question from the audience was, um, is this one where you might use a non-nucleoside, not meaning in an RTI, but no nuke, like sort of North Korea, no nuke, <laughs> where you have no nukes and... Um, and, and just use two. So one thing that our clinic is using a fair amount of that I, I don't endorse, to be honest, uh, but I think it may be working because I haven't seen a failure yet, but that's like dangerous because there's only about 30 patients. They're using boosted darunavir with dolutegravir. Now that sounds like a great idea conceptually, right? It would be no nukes, you, there you go. The problem is that when they tried that with raltegravir, it didn't work out so well. It wasn't that it failed miserably, but it was pretty close to miserably. So we kind of got away from that combo. That said, dolutegravir and raltegravir probably are a little different. So we need data on that. I don't know, are there studies of that well, going Well, Eric, on? I think will tell us a little bit about dolutegravir real pivoting too as a- That's option. right, now we have data on that. Yeah, so, so I, I think it's a really good question, especially if you want to avoid, so if you're doing it with a boosted PI, you can probably do just about anything, especially in someone with a low viral load. Boosted PI with recycled nukes, with an integrase, you could do lots of different things. Um, I think in somebody who's got, if you want to avoid a boosted PI, you could just do something that's a bit avant-garde and say, it's probably okay yeah. with just three TC resistance. Or you could do something like dolutegravir real pivoting, but all of the data is in maintenance. Yeah. So that would be the concern. But what a lot of people are doing increasingly is they're looking at TAF FTC real pivoting in dolutegravir, that which like is a lot two, of medicine. two pills a day. Yeah, but very still, well tolerated. Barrel load. And you're giving it right, but but in that case you are giving three fully active drugs. Yeah. So in, I might in the absence that's the of case, data. Maybe for someone who's got you know 750,000 I'd have trouble there. But here's a question that you made that you saw earlier that if you took the pretest that you will see again if you ask the question which of the following has the most data for a two drug regimen it's dolutegravir Rolpivirine, and you're going to hear about that from Eric. So, did ever I get that? Because you're going to be asked that again at the end. All <laughs> oh, you take of your Rolpivirine most remember data. That. And if Got they it. don't remember, I might remind them. You might them. remind them too. Okay. Well, I think this has been the discussion I wanted, so thank you. And, uh, but I think you can see there's maybe a couple of really wrong answers, um, there's a couple of questionably wrong answers, and there's a couple of more right, if you will. So, uh, no data on a lot of these. Can I ask a question? Yeah, please. Mike, yeah. uh, for Eric, is there a situation 
where efavirenz has advantages? Any situation you can think of? Because, of you, course, we, we worry about the you know, uh, cognitive cost side and one, and one, so one pill a day, and, and if they're already tolerating it, but otherwise, no, not really. Right. Um, yeah. It penetrates better into CNS. It penetrates. Yeah. yeah, but it's. Uh, that could be good or bad. Right. We're going to come back to which is a great segue to this question. How many times in your clinic has anyone heard this question? I've got somebody since 2007 who's been on Efavirenz, FTC, Tenofovir. Fixed dose combination, a tripla. And they have been doing well. What do I do? Do I switch? It's a Terryton commercial. It's fight or switch, right? Somebody has lived through the 1960s, just out of themselves. Here we go. So, 45-year-old woman referred to you, diagnosed 10 years ago, 2007, 36,000 in CD4 count of 150 at the beginning. Ever since then, less than undetectable ever since, now CD4 count consistently rising, 525. She started on this regimen in January 2007, her, her only regimen. She reports no symptoms. You grill her every way to Sunday. No, I feel fine. Really? Do you? Yeah, I do. Not any, you don't have a hangnail? No. And, you know, <laughs> and she feels well. So at this point, you would pull a Herbert Walker Bush not going to do it, not going to change, wouldn't be prudent. <laughs> or change her to two nukes and ropivirine, two nukes and a boost of PI, two nukes and a integrase inhibitor, or something else. Let's vote. Is it wicked to continue? All right, let's see who Alphaba likes. Whoops, sorry. Did I ruin it? Oh, there you go. Hey. Okay, so we've got about 40% of people who are George Herbert Walker Bush. And most other people go to two nukes and an integrase inhibitor. 48-year-old woman, who on the panel would stay the course? I, I did. So I'm with the group in the 38%. And I, I don't yet have a reason. Uh, and we, we uh, in fairness, in our clinic, we have patient-reported outcomes that screen every time they come in looking for depression. She's not depressed by the screening, not even close. And we check for suicide, not even close. And she's doing okay. I don't see a reason to switch, personally. What if you had the option that we will have pretty soon, I guess, from what you've seen of, no, of uh, TAF, FTC, Vitegravir? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good option, I think. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, to me, if there's symptoms, and sometimes the argument that's come back at me when I've said this, because you can imagine, for some reason, I've gotten attacked when I say this. Um, but you know, there are people who I've switched from this to something else, and they say, I didn't realize I felt so bad. Okay, right? See, heads affirmatively nodding, even upstairs. And so, the, so that's a good point. But, I mean, I want to tell you, I grilled her to ask her, was there anything? And she said no. Plus, she didn't want to. So, so it's an option. No. Yeah. Susan. I mean, I'm looking at people's resumes all the time now that we have TAF out there. And, and you can, there are options to pay people off 
TDF, and so I do. If it's easy to make a switch, I just do. And so that would be another reason to get her off. I don't like a father uh, anyway, but even the TF is, is enough for me to, to get her off the regimen. Okay. Yeah, I was going to sort of say the same thing. I think the efavirenz part is the thing that gets our attention initially, and you, you address that and all of the issues about it. And if she really isn't having any side effects, I don't think there's any reason to believe there's going to be long-term consequences of efavirenz use. So it really ends up being the TAF part. And, you know, she's a 48, 50-year-old woman. Osteoporosis may become a bigger issue, and that would be the reason to at least start thinking about it if you're not already monitoring her. Fair enough. Yeah. I, I deliberately did this to be a straw man, and I also wanted to vent because, like a lot of our current politicians, uh, I think with my emotions. And, <laughs> and so there's an emotion that I feel every time a drug is about ready to go off patent, it suddenly becomes evil. Right? Think sequinavir, right? This drug got abused. I mean, it just had the absolute worst track record. But once it was about to go generic, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's a QTC problem in the EKG. What? Where did that come from? I don't know. The FDA put it out. All of a sudden, it's evil. So you can't use it anymore. And I, I don't get it. So all of a sudden, the Favarins gets to that point. Your good point about TDF, that's another one. Not off patent yet, but heading there. And it just feels like there's this conspiracy, I'm just saying. So I feel better now. Thank you. Uh, your bill is in the mail. Okay. All right. This. Yes, please. Given that she doesn't want to change, is anybody influenced by price? Ah. Question for those upstairs Is anybody on the panel influenced by the price? Well, she's not, but somebody is. She's not paying anything. Somebody is. I mean, I, we haven't gotten there yet in this country. I'm not sure where we are with price. I, I, I think that, um, you know, certainly the manufacturer's list price or the Red Book price or the AWP, high, really high. We don't have much luck in this country with generics and lowering prices in a lot of disease states. Um, HIV is going to probably be one. But in addition to that, a lot of the a lot of the payers are the government, and sometimes we have 340B pricing, which is really low for the, even the, right? So we haven't quite gotten there yet in this country. The question about pricing will be at play in Great Britain, probably Canada, France, Europe, um, Australia, where they have a fixed budget, and they have to make it work. So that'll be an interesting thing to watch unfold. Okay, Susan, this is, you're coming right at you. So... This question comes up a fair amount. I've got a question from a seronegative partner of a successfully treated patient. Should he go on PrEP? So, 45-year-old guy who's uninfected with HIV comes to see me, or you, uh, to request PrEP. His partner is HIV positive and has been on successful therapy for 17 years, consistently undetectable. No, the patient, the 45-year-old guy coming to me, feels well, no medical problems, no medication, and he, on questioning, denies that he has any partners outside of his relationship. Are you going to prescribe PrEP, not prescribe PrEP, not sure what to do, let's vote. A little bit easier to read this one. Of Chicago. That's where we are. Okay. 
oriented now, and it's Wednesday. I'm a doctor. <laughs> Who knew? Okay. This is fun for me because I've given this talk in different places, and the answer changes depending on where we are. So uh, there's one um, where most said not, and here it says most say do. So Susan, be the referee. So I, I think this is, I don't think there's a necessarily a right answer, I guess I'll say to begin with. Um, but I think that I would have a discussion with the patient. If it, in fact, he really doesn't have any other partners, and if, in fact, he's in this stable monogamous relationship with his partner and the partner's truly been virally suppressed for 17 years, then he probably doesn't need PrEP. That said, there are a couple of, of issues that may come up. One is, if he's new to me and he's really pushing that he wants PrEP, I'm likely to start him on PrEP because I, again, because we're so bad at taking sexual histories and I don't know whether he's whether this is his version of telling me that he has other risk, um, right? Yeah. And then as we get, get, you know, get to know each other over time, then I might try to take him off of it. Another thing about it is, um, is I, I think we underestimate the tension in discordant relationships between the partners, the, the dampening effect it has on people's sexual lives. The positive partner does not want to infect the negative partner. The negative partner doesn't want to become infected. And it can create a lot of tension within the relationship and it can really um, destroy a sex life. So for some people, that's an important next step so that they can feel like they actually are able to be sexually active with each other. So I guess I would explore those issues a bit. I think from a transmission standpoint, if his partner really has been undetectable for 17 years, he, he has virtually, virtually no uh, likelihood of, of transmission. Um, and so again, he's not someone I would go out and try to round up to get onto PrEP, but I would base it a bit on quality of life issues and whether if he's really pushing for it, at least give him the benefit of the doubt to begin with and start him on PrEP. Okay, and I've, like I said, I've asked this a lot. What I've walked away with, and see if this sounds right, um, that what I'll say to the person is, I'm going to give you a set of facts, and then I want you to tell me what you'd like us to do. I will tell you that if you are only having sex with a seronegative partner who's been negative for 17 years, your risk is zero. Now, with that set of facts, I'm happy to write a prescription right now for prep for you and no further questions. What do you want me to do? And that's one way forward. I think that's exactly right because it's not requiring that they disclose things that they may not be ready to disclose yet. Yeah, and I don't have to go, I don't have to know more necessarily at that point. So uh, back to the question of cost, um, I think this is a case where PrEP is not cost effective. So, you, you know, you don't base decisions about one person on a population basis, uh, but studies have shown that PrEP is cost effective when yeah. the risk is high when it's not, it's not cost effective. And, and Assuming this one, he really doesn't have other partners, right? Because yeah. uh, again, in almost every study I've seen of serodiscordant couples, a third to a quarter of, of the yeah. transmissions are coming from it's outside. It's the immaculate infection, yeah. right. Okay. I, I think it's also important uh, to talk with the, the woman in, in the picture as well. I mean, although she's been undetectable, is she having sex outside the, the discordant sex with other people as well? Because, I mean, she theoretically could get 
another case of HIV. So yeah. again, just I, I, I'd like to see yeah. it as a whole unit, but both sides and just discuss it right. if possible. So I've got about three cases left in about mm, 15 or so minutes, so we'll go a little faster here. One question, what do I do with, the, with TAF and someone who's got renal uh, stage whatever CKD? So this is a 48-year-old person, male, four years ago, 128,280 initially, B5701 negative, has been on darunavir boosted TDF and FTC for quite a while, had success, wild type, is a smoker, history of diabetes, although he himself is not diabetic, negative family history. He's had a slow rise in the serum creatinine on that regimen. Now it's 2.3 with an estimated creatinine clearance of 35. He's hepatitis B surface antibody positive, but antigen negative vaccinated. So are you going to go to the tenofovir every other day? Going to go to TAF with boosted darunavir, PAF with abacavir, uh, 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 F3TC, TAF? You kind of get it. It'll show up a little bit better. Here's that darunavir boosted dolutegravir just for grins and giggles and some other option. So let's go ahead and vote. Okay, and all that jazz. Whoops. There it is. So very few people kept them on TDF. In fact, nobody did. That's fine. Uh, just a quick answer here. What, what do you all? I guess the question is: Is TAF okay here, Eric? Yeah. So I mean, this is a great question, and I can appreciate the distribution of answers. You know, I I think that the the issue with TAF is that it's approved for people with creatinine clearances down to thirty, um, but. I think it's important to remember how, what kind of data we have that led to that approval. It's really based on some PK data showing what the levels are in people with more advanced renal disease and based on one single arm open label switch study of people who had creatinine clearances between 30 and 69 who were then followed for a year on TAF, FTC, L-Vitegra, Cobacistat and their renal function remains stable. And and that's all fine and good, but one, that was a population presumably that were very stable with advanced renal disease. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been just cooking along, two-thirds of whom were on TDF. Um, this is somebody who's experiencing a progressive decline in their renal function. In addition, if one answer that I think is particularly risky if you're going to use TAF is we need to remember that Tenofovir is boosted by boosters, and TAF... Uh, is boosted by boosters, the serum levels. And remember, the only way we can use TAF FTC is with the dose of 25 milligrams, as opposed to the 10 that's been used in all of the clinical trials, including right. that single-arm study that I was talking yeah. about. So the levels that you're going to see in somebody with advanced renal disease yeah. on TAF FTC with a booster are going to be quite high. Yeah. And I would be very anxious to do that. Well, in addition... I, this is probably the most complicated question I'm going to ask today. Because in addition to that, cobicistat and dolutegravir each have an enzyme inhibitor at the, at the proximal tubule that blocks secretion of creatinine. 
Now, most of our creatinine filtration happens, or excretion, happens at the glomerulus, and that's GFR, right? So we do estimated GFR, and that's usually correct. However, there's a, there's a fraction, a small fraction, but a significant enough one that's secreted by two different enzymes, OCT2 and MATE1, not that you need to remember that, but the point is that once they get inhibited, you're gonna see a drop in the estimated creatinine clearance in, a, in an increase of about 0.15 to 0.2 milligrams per deciliter of creatinine without any change in GFR. So you got this person who's already 2.3 with an eGFR of 35, you can be guaranteed it's going below 30 just by using one of those drugs. So now what do you do? You're gonna do an inulin clearance to see how well, or iohexol to see how well the glomerulus is working? I don't think so. So to make it simple, what you could do is use a Bacavir, although Steve would say he's a smoker, so get him to quit smoking, right? Hopefully. And then, then you sort of alleviate that. Or you could use um, the ritonavir, but again, the boosting of the tap. This is hard. This one's a hard question. And so I think we've done justice to it. It's, it's not a common scenario, but I've made the points I, but, that we wanted to make. But, so. but let me make one little Please. one, though. I agree it's hard for all those reasons. Um, I would be reluctant to leave him on TAF just because I wouldn't want to do any harm also. I mean TDF. But, but this, no, um, no TDF, no, for sure. But right. even TAF would make me anxious. Yeah, right. Um, and, but, but this is a setting because we're worried about a Bacavir and because we're worried about Tenofovir. To think about a tenofovir bacavir sparing regimen yep. for one where we have the most robust data right. being dolutegravir and rilpivirine. Really? The yeah, most robust data? the most data. robust data for wow. these novel combinations. The most robust. Okay, so that, cool. that's, And this would be maintenance, so that could work. Exactly. Okay, I'm going to skip this. All right, here's a Steve Grinspoon question. Here we go. Should I stop a bacavir? This is a convoluted stem that I made up. 59-year-old guy started on ARV with you years ago. Resistance was wild type. And now returns to you after a four-year absence. He was treated elsewhere. Moved to somewhere in Indiana, and now he's back. Um, has been through several regimens, and now is on the fixed dose combination of Abacavir 3TC Dolutegravir. Doing great virologically. Cholesterol, 32, this is before he had his heart attack. So this is his pre-heart attack while he was on this regimen. He's a smoker and he's a diabetic and he's 59 years old and he had a heart attack. But now, post-heart attack, he's on aspirin, Dr. Greenspan. <laughs> he's on a statin. He's on a beta blocker. And he also remains on a Bacavir. What to do? So, another Herbert Walker Bush. Do you change that to TAF FTC and continue the dolutegravir? Uh, do you yeah, go to this darunavir dolutegravir option or whatever else, or some other option? Go ahead and vote. This is Ray Charles. Okay. All right, most people don't want to stay the course and switch. Steve. 
<clears throat> well, you didn't, you didn't give all the information. What, which, statin, which statin is he on? Uh, uh, rosuvastatin. Well, it matters because some interact with darunavir. Okay. So tell us about that. Pravastatin. Okay. So anyway. Well, nobody just, uses pravastatin. I'm just telling you. It's common. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, I actually am not sure I'd switch. Um, the, he's been on it for four years, uh, and the action happens in the beginning. And he's already on an incredibly complicated regimen with his statin and other things, polypharmacy. Uh, so I would consult my ID colleagues and say, how hard is it to do your work in this So dude? you'd punt. I, I wouldn't yeah. feel, I no, wouldn't feel a huge it's an need important to do it. Only, only because you said he's on it for four years. That's right. And yeah. I also said he was on aspirin. And one of the things yes. you said that I picked up very clearly was that the purported mechanism of how abacavir, outside yep. of some crazy thing, how abacavir does this is through platelet aggregation. And what does aspirin do? It yeah. fights platelet aggregation. So does that enough to counterbalance? I don't know. But at least you feel a little bit better because he's on aspirin. So this is a conundrum. There isn't a right answer. So don't, don't get shook. It's not like you know, sort of preaching. Here. I, yeah, I wouldn't put it's him tough. on a, if it. If the exact you same case, I would not start it. De novo. And then the other thing that right. came up, I'm not going to spend any time on per se, but there, you know, here you go. They do another cohort study, and they show that um, darunavir suddenly has an increased risk for increased cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, strokes, whatever. That was at Croy this year. Let me let me share with you some. Thought. So to, as we leave the question, I think the answer is do your best. The number one thing we could do, I think we'd all agree on, get the guy to quit smoking for God's yeah, sake. I mean, he had a heart attack, <laughs> right? And all these little nuances of relative risk that we dance around, 1.7, 1.8. If you put smoking in there, it's like 20 or something, right? So get them off, get them to quit, you know, give them, a, know, give them some opioids. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> don't, don't do that. <laughs> uh, really close to Indiana. Yeah. All right. But what I want to share with you is this. This is a study, uh, Steve mentioned the, uh, uh, the study here out of Northwestern that looked at uh, the relative risks and the different predictors. This is out of the same group um, out of Scenix, Heidi Crane. And the group has 33. 2,000 people followed over 15 years in different clinics around the country, pooled data, and there were about 1,200 myocardial infarctions that were reported. And Heidi had these myocardial infarctions adjudicated, meaning all the data from around the time of the MI on the chart was sent to three cardiologists blinded to who the patients were except for their clinical data. And they said, yes, heart attack, yes, no. And if heart attack, was it the plaque like Steve talked to you about, which is called type 1, or was it a type 2 where there was vasospasm or supply-demand mismatch? Two really important take-home points. Number one, a substantial number of the things listed out of electronic health records as myocardial infarctions ain't. Southern, ain't. Meaning... Somebody who was taking care of them wanted to put rule out MI. There is no such thing. So they put MI in as a working diagnosis and forget to take it out when they're ruled out. 
So when you look at these data coming from cohorts, understand that there can be errors. So got to... Or that nothing was put in. Or that nothing was put in. So that's another possibility. But the other take-home point, at least in the scenics data, of the sure enough southernism, is the sure enough MIs, it was 50-50. 50-50. And the most common cause of type 2 was cocaine and methamphetamine. Surprise. Right? So that's a take... Yeah, Steve. <coughs> so that, this is a really important point. I think, I think it was almost 50% were the type 2 uh, MIs. And um, a really important point is, you know, do, if statins do work, do, would they work against for the type 2 MI? Um, so this is a really important point. Uh, uh, I could say the reprieve will be adjudicating and classifying the type 1 and type 2, but, you know, one could imagine where it would be more efficacious in a type 1 than a type 2, although if there, what people say about this is it's never exactly type 1 or type 2. There could be vasospasm on a substrate of a bit of plaque, and there statins might help. So I think this is an incredibly important point that the scenics cohort has brought up and needs hang on because this is going to become important. Right. So I've already mentioned that. Um, okay. So that's a take-home point. Another sub-study of that done by Peter Hunt showed that prospectively you could predict the MIs, at least the type 1s, by an elevated D-dimer. Now, does that mean we should be checking D-dimers all the time? No, not necessarily, but one day maybe, well, something to keep an eye on. Okay, two last quick cases, because um, I had about 10 minutes for questions after, sort of. Okay, yeah, all right. So I'm going to bleed into that a little bit, because uh, I want to get to these last two. This question comes up all the time. What do I, do I change a person's regimen when they have low detectable virus? It gets back to Steve Deeks's presentation. So here's the story. 55-year-old guys referred to you, you diagnosed 18 years ago. Isn't that something to say that? 18 years ago. Isn't that cool? All right. High viral load initially, low CD4 count. Now his CD4 count is high, and his priest has got a persistent sort of smoldering viremia. Doesn't really get below 20, or if he does, it's, it's periodic, but it goes right, sort of bounces around. Originally, he was on nelfinavir, D4T, and 3TC. Don't use that anymore. Do, fellows, do you even know what those drugs are? <laughs> <laughs> and went through a bunch of others. But now is on dolutegravir, boosted darunavir with cobicistat, and 3TC. No historical, you don't have any resistance data. But he's, he's undetectable, sort of. So what are you going to do? Change his regimen? Keep his regimen. Go ahead and vote. It's never been above 100. Just. Couldn't hear it well enough. All right. Oh, okay. Most people would not change. Thoughts from the panel? If you aren't going to change, which I suspect most people won't, why not? Yeah, it's, you know, when we went back to one of the early surveys that John did, I think about 64% of the people said they were a sore five, four and five expert 
experts. I think that's who the 64% yeah, are. See because, how things come back? Yeah, because we, um, it was a little less than that, but still. I mean, we've, I think we fixated on this a long time ago when they switched to real-time PCR platforms, and we started having a bunch of these people, and a lot of us flogged these people and switched therapy, and it didn't seem to do any good. And now there's been some data where they've looked to see whether having viral loads of 50 to 200 predicted true viral failure, and it hasn't. And then there wasn't a lot of evidence for evolving resistance, but there are some studies where say maybe there is. So I think you know the guidelines address this because it was a big problem and it was happening a lot and nobody knew what to do. And the guidelines are saying for the most part, make sure they're taking their meds, make sure there are no drug, 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 food interactions, and just monitor them in these situations. Yeah, and another reason for this, I would add two things. One is that back in the day when we were discovering viral load, um, we saw this happening as a little different numbers, but it doesn't matter. And we said, well, we'll intensify, right? We're going to add another drug because maybe this is kind of some smoldering stuff. And guess what? Didn't change a thing. So the answer was there was probably no de novo replication, meaning infection of an uninfected cell by a virus, which is all antiretroviral therapy does, by the way, right? It doesn't do anything to the cell that's already infected, the reservoir. All it does is protect an uninfected cell from becoming infected. That's it. Blocks entry, blocks reverse transcription, blocks integration, or blocks maturation that, pre that prevents another cell from becoming infected by an immature virus. That's what it does. So you put all that together with the reservoir question. And a key point of this case, without me going back, was that his baseline viral load was almost a million. And we know that the plasma viremia is directly proportional to the number of cells in the body producing virus. That's a fact. So what that means is his reservoir is enormous relative to somebody who had 28,000, right? So he's got cells that every now and then, in my mind's eye, is spitting out some virus that gets detected. Big deal, right? So we're, I would stay the course here. He's doing well. He feels good. And I don't think he's at any risk to speak of for virologic failure in this setting for those reasons. You know, I'm gonna keep following him, right? And if it goes above 200, then we might have an issue. But my experience and from data, it typically doesn't happen and blips are kind of the same way. Mike, would you put him on, put his partner on PrEP? Would you put his partner on PrEP? I wouldn't uh, because I don't think, uh, I, I go back to the Rakai study to some degree and I think, and even though you can detect PCR virus out of genital secretions, I don't think that implies that they're, uh, they're going to be infectious. Uh, inculturable virus is hard out of genital secretions. That was a question about would you put his partner on PrEP. Yes? Yes, you could. So the question is about genotypes. And the way you would do that is that you could do DNA, cellular DNA, which would be getting at the reservoir, and then sequencing that. And that's actually a pretty good idea if you're on the fence. Um, in this case, I'm not too much on the fence, as you can tell, but maybe I'm being a little bit overconfident, which is always dangerous in medicine, right? Always dangerous. Okay, I think this is our last case, right? Pitching it over the plate right to Susan. What regimen should I use as initial therapy in a pregnant patient? I will tell you, you saw this question, and I think only about 20% got it right. Here we go. So, this is a 30-year-old woman, newly diagnosed, asymptomatic, and she became diagnosed when she went in for her first pregnancy evaluation. She's two and a half months pregnant. 
Her viral load is that magical 28,000, and her CD4 count is <laughs> 650. Imagine that. Wow, gets around. She's B5701 negative. She's wild-type virus. She's got no other past medical history. This is her first pregnancy, and she's okay to start therapy if you say it's okay. Now, I'm deliberately restricting your choices here. So it's mostly what's up on the board, although there's nine of them. Some other option if you don't like it. Um, so out of these choices, tenofovir, FTC, efavirenz, avacavir, 3TC, dolutegravir, here's elvitegravir, here's ropivirine with TDF, here's TAF with dolutegravir, here's TDF with boosted darunavir or COBE, uh, TAF, et cetera. Go ahead and pick your favorite. This is our last question. <laughs> Here we go. There's multiple answers. Is that Elder Price? Yeah. We're going to go two by two. Is that true? Door to door. Yeah. Once some more, yes. All right. Whoops. Oh, there we go. Susan, walk us through this. Tell us what are the wrong answers, because there are some. Oh, They're sorry. not totally, t absolutely the first malpractice thing, wrong. There's a lot that we know, don't know. So in the guidelines, they have this whole table six, whatever it's called, uh, what we use for initial therapy. And although we may not change someone who comes in on, on these meds, we wouldn't necessarily start them. And that includes uh, dilutegravir, in theory. Um, it would include um, meds that are less potent. Um, so looking at this li list, um, we have less data on rapivirine. I mean, this probably can be fine, but we don't really have the same kind of confidence that we have in things like actually we had darunavir is quite good. A uh, out of zanivir would be okay, but less good than uh, dilutegravir. Um, I mean, I mean darunavir, boosted darunavir. Um, there's no data on TAF. Um, we'd love that to be, and I'm sure there will be, and we hope that anyone who happens to be on it in pregnancy will forward to the, to the um, antiretroviral registry so we get more data. So at least for now, we got to not use uh, TAF. Theoretically, we shouldn't use Dalutegravir uh, straight up, um, although people do tend to add that if, where you are in pregnancy. She's fairly early, so we have some time. So I would, I would do a boosted, tenofovir boosted uh, PI. Tenofovir boosted PI. How about tenofovir uh, with efavirenz? That'd be okay too, um, uh, but again, there, there are issues in terms okay. of uh, emotional the other things, and right. and um, and certainly the issue with concern about. Um, Neurotube. Uh, 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 neuro stuff has really not panned out, so that would not be necessarily a reason not to use it. Right. And if that's the only thing we had available, and certainly what's being used by women across the, around the world, it's the most commonly used uh, combination of regimen, I say go for it. But if, we are, if you're here and you have options, I, I wouldn't do that first of all. Right. So uh, but post-presidency, I, I, I'm free to do whatever I want. So I, I certainly at that point we've got some single easy single dog um, right. Okay, so the take home points are TAF, hardly any data, and I'm gonna show you what is known. I'll just go through that first and then I'll recap. So for TAF, the intracellular concentration of the diphosphate is four to five times higher for TAF than TDF. 
intracellular. So it gets back to a little bit about what Eric was saying about boosting with ritonavir. And if you put her on TAF with ritonavir, I'm not sure what that four to five is going to become and whether that's even bad. I don't know. But the fact that we don't know means don't do it for now. So TAF would not be a good choice on that question. So you can rule out three of the answers on that question like that, okay? Dalutegravir, kind of the same thing. When the toxicity studies, they didn't see anything. But there's a high placental transfer of dalutegravir relative to other ARVs, and so no one knows what that means just yet. So for the time being, all things being equal, probably want to stay away for now. So in that question that you got, if you look carefully at it, there's five options, four of which either have TAF and or dalutegravir, and the only option that would be kosher is a TDF, FTC, a Favarin's one. And I thought people would run away from that because it's a Favarin's, and in the old days that was a no-no, but it's not so much a no-no anymore. It may not be the best choice, but among those five, it would be the best choice. So I'm not telling you how to vote, but yeah. Okay, so, and then Rolpivirine, I think you made a good point about Abacavir. And she's B5701 negative. It's okay? Yep. Okay. So I think that's it. We have time for a few questions. Oh, summary slide. Thank you. Whoops. Oh, that, that, oh, there it is. Okay. So what we talked about was there's a debate about whether to treat elite controllers, but our panel kind of unanimously liked it. Uh, the presence of M184V, we had a very robust discussion about that. Um, and maybe not using a Bacavir in that setting, or maybe not the Dalutegravir 3TC that you're about to hear about in great detail. We talked about primary and secondary MIs. That's uh, something to be aware of. Um, holding off on TAF or Dalutegravir in pregnant women, pending more data. And if there's persistent low-level viremia, you can probably stay, stick it out, just kind of monitor or maybe get a DNA resistance assay, but if, I'm not sure I'd change even if it showed me something. So let's thank our panel and thank you for your attention and participation and we'll wrap up.